Our guest today is someone who has been inspiring me for years, without even knowing it. He's a writer, coach, teacher, thinker, and mentor to some of your favorite NBA players and coaches. He's someone who cares very much about the big picture. He spent 10 years as ESPN's lead NBA analyst, and in 2017, he published his first book, Basketball is Jazz, Stories and Lessons from a Basketball Lifer. Drawing on his time coaching and training high school and NBA players, he offers a glimpse into how the game is best taught, played, coached, and enjoyed. Most recently, you can find him at truehoop.com. And I want to start off by reading a quote from the foreword of Basketball is Jazz by Henry Abbott, his partner and the founder of True Hoop. And Abbott is talking about research into successful military teams. It reads, In some units, soldiers take extraordinary risks for each other. A soldier running point puts his life on the line by running far ahead into enemy territory, laying down fire to make a large area for their team to move up. Following soldiers are precise, quick, and coordinated in support. Everyone puts their life on the line a little extra. Unfathomable risk, but when the group works like that, they can perform magically winning far more than expected, sometimes including when they are badly outmatched. He continues, The real reason to listen to David more than others is because he has been running point for love and basketball from the beginning. And he is way out in front, making it safe for the rest of us. The reason I wanted to read that quote is because I think it perfectly describes how I see David Thorpe. He makes being a good guy cool. He's a civic leader as a coach, and I'm really happy he's a part of this project. And now... My conversation with David Thorpe. All right. Um, so to get started, I thought I'd just ask, um, you know, check in with you and and see, ask what's it, what's it like to be you right now, um, and how are you coping with the state of our society? Boy, so you know, Zach, I. I like a lot of people my age, I'm almost, I'll be 56 in February. It's getting close. Um, I wear a lot of hats, right? So mm-hmm. I'm a husband to a, a woman. We've been married now 30 years. Uh, last month was our 30th anniversary. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, I was 22 and I met her. And the day I met her, I told my parents, I met the girl I'm going to marry. <laughs> but it worked out. And we, I think by October 31st, uh, we dated October 23rd was our first date. I met her July 4th, July 6th, 1987. Our first date was October 23rd. And then uh, October 31st, I told her I want to grow old with her. By Christmas, December 23rd, she pretty much said, okay, that <laughs> we're going to work this out because she wasn't, she was Catholic. She was raised Catholic and I'm Jewish. And uh-huh. We had a good chat about it. So I, my point is I've been with this woman wow. and I was just out of college. Mm-hmm. And so she's hurting. My my wife on on uh, the election in 2016 cried. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, she almost got mad at me because you know I'm she is a very independent, strong woman. But mm-hmm. like my job in part was to protect her from terrible people, and I failed because this guy won the election. Mm-hmm. So um, she wasn't really mad at me, but uh, it, it's it, it actually has brought us closer together. But she's hurting. She's hurting. Mm-hmm. for our 19-year-old twins that are in college right now, uh, mm-hmm. both of which she told me today that um, there is concern that people who get COVID now might be dealing with this forever to some right. degree with regard to like heart attacks. Mm-hmm. And she's not even worried about us. We're pretty much quarantined. It's our kids who are in mm-hmm. college environments that we're worried about. And and I have 
as you can imagine, being a coach for 30 plus years, lots of black and brown friends. Mm-hmm. I live in Florida, which has a, uh, plenty of uh, 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 people from the Latino culture that are, mm-hmm. that are near and dear to us. Some people we work with and or employ uh, at our house and everything. And and uh, my my son's best friend, actually, both of my kids' best friends are. Uh, uh, I think I think he's Dominican and she's Cuban. Uh, my daughter's best friend and my son's best friend is uh, is Dominican Elijah. And um, and so all these things are happening, and we're dealing with this as as mothers and fathers and uh, and our friends. And I have uh, a couple of b- black friends in particular that. They would say we're brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they literally will text my mom on Mother's Day, and you know, from their son, from another mother, kind of thing. And right. um, uh, when Doc Rivers gave his famous, mm-hmm. uh, now famous speech uh, after one of their games, maybe maybe it was the clinching win um, last mm-hmm. week in Orlando. People asked me how I felt about it, and mm-hmm. I didn't react at all. I was actually almost surprised that people were so moved. Really? Because I've just had that conversation with my friends so many times. Hmm. Uh, I, I've told this story. I, I live in, I think, a pretty relatively uh, nice area. And I wouldn't call mm-hmm. it a racist area, but I can tell you that every black player I've ever coached in the area, from out of the area, these are pros, have been pulled over at least once by police. Wow. And never gotten a ticket. Yeah. And they're rich guys sometimes, not always. Mm-hmm. I just had one the other day driving a very nice Mercedes. Uh, and, um, he got pulled over, no ticket. He, he thought maybe it was cause his windows were tinted. And I said, dude, I drive a nicer car than yours. And right. my cars are, my car is super tinted. And <laughs> exactly. I said, did he see you from the front or from the side? And he thought about it. He's like, oh, he's a young, he's young, he's 24. Okay. He hadn't thought about it and he got no ticket. So he wasn't too worried. But I said, he realized, yeah, the guy drove by me and turned around. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could, you wouldn't be able to see him if you had been on the side of him or behind him. Right. Uh, and so I'm dealing with all these things from different perspectives. And I would tell you just now I was walking home to my neighborhood. I'm just speaking very honestly to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, have a, I have a nice neighborhood, 21 homes here. And one of our neighbors is, I'm, I'm guessing he's a, a strong Republican. Mm-hmm. We don't really talk politics. I don't see him a whole lot. We, have a, we all have an acre of land, so we don't see each other very much, which is kind okay. of by design. Uh, and... Uh, he puts all these American flags around <laughs> our entry. And I really, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not proud to be an American right now. Mm. And, um, and so, and I've, and I've been around and traveled and I've certainly seen my share of lots of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we can do is, is continue to try to be inspiring to people. Uh, that's what I define leadership to be, is breathing mm-hmm. spirit and hearts and minds of others, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and to give young people a, a plan of action, including my children, I'm very proud to say they'll be voting for the first time. Yeah. And yeah. we didn't, you know, people people sometimes accuse parents of dictating to their kids as if they ever listened to us. <laughs> um, I'm very proud to know that my children are, are loving, decent human beings. Mm-hmm. I credit their mom more than anything, but uh, maybe I helped a little bit. And um, <laughs> they're decent people who want who want the world to be a better place because of their close relationships and mm-hmm. because they're decent people. And so, yeah, it's not, it's not great. My players are hurting. Um, I, I talked to some guys inside Orlando, they were playing and, yeah. you know, it was, it was weird for them uh, knowing what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm disheartened. That would be the last thing I would say is because I'm 55 and because I've been out of high school now for so long mm. and I grew up in an area that I thought was great. 
And uh, we went to school together. Many of us, like I have three or four girlfriends that I knew in third grade. Mm, wow. Some of them went to my bar mitzvah in 1978. And I'm still <laughs> like, like we, we, I texted with four of them today. Mm. Just catching up. Their husbands are adorable. Some of them I went to school with too. They're great. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them I didn't know, but they're terrific guys. And, um, and of course, I'm friendly with some. My best friend from seventh grade is a d- dear, dear, dear friend of mine. He actually texted me today yeah. on a different matter. But I'm alarmed to say that I went to school with some really terrible people. Right. They were not terrible when I knew them. Uh, I, my black friends growing up, who I'm mm. in touch with now, uh, not just black. Also, I have a, a one friend from the Philippines. He's Filipino. He's a dentist now in New York City. And he's an amazing guy. And he told me that um, he never knew that he was Asian growing up. Wow. He never. I, I was so proud of all my classmates for for that. I never even thought about it for one second. But apparently none of us, no one else did either. He, he just thought he was just like me. And he, in fact, he was at my bar mitzvah too. Uh-huh. And um, I, so I'm so proud of that background. And yet I'm, on Facebook, you know, we, we have all mm-hmm. sorts of different groups on Facebook. And I see and I argue with them frequently. And we do it decently and professionally because we're nice people. But mm-hmm. I, I'm alarmed at how they don't get it. Yeah. And even today, it, uh, it happened where they were telling me how Biden, uh, has all of these different, you know, terrible qualities. And yet these were qualities he had in the 60s and 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. which is how Republicans feel now. Mm. And I try to point out that, no, no, if he was still that way, we wouldn't be voting for him. Right. But he has grown, which is how we're, I, I'm not, there's nothing about me mm-hmm. that was, that, that is the same as what I was 22, other than my eye color. <laughs> and I had a, I bought a green lantern, a little green lantern uh, action thing that's, you know, five inches tall with my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, mm-hmm. at a flea market for a dollar. I still have that. <laughs> I might have uh, a couple of Tom Clancy books from then, but I'm way different than that. Exactly. I, isn't that how we're supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's alarming to me that not everyone kind of thinks that way, that the whole point of this, as I said to someone today, we started out as a country incredibly uh, genocidal, genocidal, racist, mm-hmm. misogynistic, right? Mm-hmm. Sadistic. That's how we began as a nation. We've gotten better. Mm-hmm. We, sh- we should want to continue to do that, not go backwards. And you know, I'm alarmed at the fact that some people don't see it that way. Agreed. Um, would you tell me more about, you talked a little about, about, you know, the kind of people you went to high school with. When you think back, um, when you think about kind of what was it like for you growing up um, and how do you think your life outlook was formed? Like, were there main things that, that stick with you when you were a child and growing up? So my parents celebrate, celebrated their 58th anniversary yesterday. Wow. <laughs> so uh, now they fight like crazy. I call them the Costanzas for anyone that watches Seinfeld. Yep. You know what I yep. mean? But they've been married 58 years and longer than I've been alive. And um and so I and so I grew up in a household that definitely had lots of conflict. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, we were a family. I had two brothers and a sister. I still do. Um, you know, I think I definitely uh, it, we had back then. Um, we had my dad was a full, was a lawyer, and my mom uh, was a very busy with four kids. But she also volunteered for a million things, and then mm-hmm. she went back to school and got her degree because she left school right before she graduated to put my dad through law school. 
Mm-hmm. And and so we had a housekeeper nanny second mom who was black, mm-hmm. a black woman named mm-hmm. Diane Stotts. Uh, Diane died 20 some odd years ago. And mm-hmm. she was our second mom. When my parents traveled, which wasn't often, mm-hmm. once or twice a year, uh, she stayed with us. And I went to her church, which was a, a Baptist church down in, um, down in South St. Pete. And she cooked for Thanksgiving the kind of things that people living in back then, it was like the project, would eat for Thanksgiving. And that's mm-hmm. how I ate Thanksgiving. We had my own Thanksgiving with what my family made, and, and then we had what Diane made, and and she, she really was our second mom. And as I got older, I appreciated her more and more. She was very tough growing up, but mm-hmm. it really informed my outlook. I, I saw the world in part through her eyes. Uh, I knew her her daughter used to come over sometimes. She had a, a son named Donnie. His, her daughter name was Dolphine, uh-huh. and they were at her house all the time, and uh Donnie was like my little brother. And um, it, it, it helped. It definitely, and then playing basketball too, helped inform my outlook uh-huh. mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I didn't ever appreciate until I went to college and realized that that wasn't so normal. At my bar mitzvah, my two brothers' bar mitzvah, my sister's bat mitzvah, Diane sat at our table. Hmm. She was part of our family. It was never mm-hmm. the help. We right. never, ever, ever could disrespect her, ever. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't even think to do it once we got older. Um, I used to love coming back and visiting her when I was in college. She was a, mm-hmm. a wonderful person. And um, I once broke her leg chasing off a bully who was trying to beat me up after <laughs> I was in first grade. Yeah. Oh, no. She was an amazing <laughs> woman. Uh, Eddie Murphy used to tell a story about his mom throwing a, her shoe like a boomerang. <laughs> and, and Diane didn't uh, throw a shoe, but she would take it to you. Um, yeah, we, we got beat up pretty good by her slipper Her gold, we called them her golden slippers, which they were golden. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. My area was great, but I don't know that I ever appreciated any of that till I got older. I think what really affected my life more than anything, uh, was, you know, falling for this really incredibly attractive, intelligent, independent woman when I was 22 Mm -hmm. and didn't have any plan for anything. I was, I was a lost boy, graduated college, but had a writing opportunity, had some coaching opportunities. I, I didn't know I wanted to be a coach. I didn't really know. I didn't know if I wanted to go to grad school. I ended up knowing that I just wanted to take care of her, you know, somehow, mm. right? Just yeah. be a good partner, make a life with her. And that that kind of gave me some ambition that I'm not sure I ever had before. Mm. Um, and I still do. Like, nothing different. I still – that still helps to drive me. Obviously, there's bigger things that I'm fighting for causes, mm-hmm. children, all of it. But mm-hmm. I would argue that it started, Chrissy, her name is Christine, but I call her Chrissy. She was she was the kind of girl that with just one look, any guy would want to date. That was how I saw it, of course. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I couldn't compete with anybody. And so at least if I carried the briefcase, I'd look the part a little bit of a, some kind of serious <laughs> professional. And um, I went in debt buying two suits for... Uh, I think it was for a thousand dollars. I bought I bought two suits that were a thousand dollars. Was buy one get one from a, a store called Ivy's that became Dillard's um, years later because I wanted to look the part as a coach too. And I I don't think it was just to impress her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a JV coach and a head JV assistant varsity, but it definitely was to impress her and her family. Mm-hmm. And then also I wanted my kids to know how serious I was. But I I don't think without her I would have done any of that. And I it really helped me. I, uh, and I always iron my clothes. I once had a, a couple of female teachers say to me, mm-hmm. um, they, they met, we met one night for a, like a working dinner. To watch, they actually love basketball. We're meeting mm-hmm. to watch a college basketball game at a sports bar. 
And uh, these were, you know, we were probably all in our mid twenties and I showed up and they laughed and I said, what was so funny? And they said, well, you've never once come to school as a teacher without an iron shirt, but mm-hmm. we thought maybe you wouldn't iron it meeting us for <laughs> you know, a meal, but I did. And I, that's all my wife and not that she ever cared, but I yeah. cared. It meant mm-hmm. something to me. I, I'm a lot more slovenly now probably. Uh, I just don't care anymore. I'm tired. I'm old, <laughs> but I cared when I was young and, um, It seemed to have worked because I got her to fall in love with me. So I can't complain about that. Yeah, I want to ask you more about how you've sort of designed your life. So you said Chrissy really gave you sort of meaning and inspiration, but you do a lot more. too you know you're an esteemed writer you're a basketball analyst you train professional basketball players you coach um high school level youth level you know so how um how do you swing all that and and still devote time to your wife and your family uh well now it's really easy because we're an empty nest Mm -hmm. my my son is a basketball player at florida state my daughter is a student at ucf and Mm -hmm. um we have a house of peace, uh, <laughs> but it's been a wild 19 years, Zach. Um, yeah. I don't know that I did really good at it. I, I don't know that I, I told my wife I was, we didn't, I didn't cry. I knew that my wife actually, our, we had our kids 19 years. We, we held mm-hmm. our twins back. They were, they were summer babies mm-hmm. and it was the choice of, do you want to be the youngest in the class or the oldest? My wife graduated high school at, at 17 mm. and, uh, uh, I thought, and I was a very late bloomer physically, very mm-hmm. late bloomer. Last guy in my high school of 4,000 kids probably hit puberty. <laughs> uh, my voice didn't drop till even after I started dating my wife. Um, I, uh, I, I, just, I just had a feeling my son was going to be a late bloomer like me. As it turns out, I was right. He grew, mm-hmm. you know, seven, eight inches, and he's almost you know, like six, three in shoes now. I think he started high school at five, six, five, five. Wow. Had he graduated a year earlier, where he would have been the youngest kid in his class, he'd have graduated at 17. Right. And um, uh, he would have he would have not grown into the the person he is now and not had this opportunity to play at Florida State the way he does. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, I, I, we didn't cry in part because we got the extra year with them. And so we was yeah. you know, we knew what we were getting and they were ready to go. The COVID had an impact, but also right. I I I get a de-stress now. That, uh, I'm lucky enough now for since 2010, I've had a home that is, uh, has an office adjacent to it where mm-hmm. I, the room I'm in right now is my writing room where mm-hmm. I do all my podcast, all my writing. It's got a big computer and a big screen computer, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then adjacent to it, uh, is my viewing room where I have four TVs to watch all the games that I watched during the NBA <laughs> season. Right. And it's my, it's my, you know, it's not, I don't call it a, a fortress of solitude. It's not a, um, <laughs> it's not one of those rec rooms. This is, a, this is my business place. I leave my phone here at night when I go in the house. Um, and so, because I can't get called during the night, but it's still adjacent to my home so that if my son is dribbling, I hear it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it always pained me because on the way, I was thrilled that he was working on his game. On the other hand, I was, oh my God, should I be out there? And then then I'd think, well, no, he's allowed to have some space from me. And then I'd be, well, but I could help him. And it just tormented me every day. I told him this. 
Yeah. And so I relieved. He is now in other people's hands. I said to the coaches the day we dropped him off, I, I told the coaches that we met, like, he's all yours. You know, I, yeah. I'm breathing easy now. And, um, and so, and then same thing, my daughter, uh, every Monday night for years, I took my daughter, my daughter was a serious dancer until she was 16. She got hurt a mm -hmm. little bit and she couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. So Monday night ballet was my thing. Um, I took my daughter to two, her three hours of dance class every Monday, typically. Yeah. Joyously, greatest night of my life every week was Monday Night Ballet because I don't know a damn thing about any of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I brought two phones with me so I could keep track of business on one and the other is where I could watch NBA League Pass if there's games on whatever. And she didn't want me peering in too much anyway, but I would, you know, I would look. Yeah. Um, and uh, so those were great. I spent a lot of time coaching a, a Little League baseball and basketball with my son for a long mm -hmm. time. Then I volunteered after that for teams he was with. Uh, but always there's a price to pay. I could be making more money and yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I was self-employed for a lot of those things. And so it's really hard. I'll just be honest. It's, it's mm -hmm. not easy when you can control things. If you're working for a company, you can't always control it. Mm -hmm. um, other than ESPN assigning me things, I could control a lot of my work schedule, mm. including writing a book. Uh, you know, yep. that, that every time I wrote, I actually wrote a book that I think I wrote most of my book when my kids were gone for like a couple weeks, one summer. I no really way. focused a lot on that. They were at camp. Wow. So that really helped me. Um, I was trying to, I try to be real disciplined with all of that so that I knew when I had to do things with, uh, with my family. Mm -hmm. And my first responsibility is to be a husband, right? I, yeah. That's one thing my dad did a good job of teaching us is, you know, I have to be loyal to my wife first because that, that foundation is, is, um, mm -hmm. is how you build the family, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I'm, I, if you ask me, Zach, what, are, what am I most proud of mm -hmm. in my life and anything, it's an easy answer. It's a relationship my twins have with their mom. Hmm. I, I definitely played a part in that. Of course, she's amazing and just kind, good, strong person. Why wouldn't they love her? Mm -hmm. But um, I know I played a role in, I've told them many times, like, if you want to get angry, get angry with me. <laughs> I'll be the bad guy. But you, you this woman went through hell to have the two of you yeah. uh, and hasn't stopped since. Yeah. So you are never going to disrespect her ever. You are always going to hold her in the highest regard. And they do. And, and they might've done that had I done nothing. I'm not stupid, but, but allow me that courtesy of believing I did something good mm -hmm. that I helped them have this incredible, incredible connection to their mother and I get along great with my kids, but they love their mom more than me. And that's, in my opinion, how it should be. I think in time, <laughs> it'll be more 50-50. Um, yeah. But uh, I think it's, for my household, it worked this way, where I could focus on the different things I was doing, still be a, a stay-at-home, a, a present father, I should say. You know, I would, do, I would do summer league. One summer I did, you know, 10 days at summer league in Vegas and a few days in Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. I might've been gone 12 days. I did it once. Like I didn't do that anymore. I turned down an NBA head coaching job because my kids were young and I thought that I'd be a terrible dad from that point on. I, I could have been an, at least an assistant GM, if not a GM, same thing. I just didn't feel like it was the right time uh, knowing my kids were the at the ages where, you know, they were, they were preteen even at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I made a decision that, no, I just, they were my priorities. And then I got the rest, you know, I'm 55. I'm hoping to living, hoping to live. My dad's 80. I'm hoping to make at least that long. I got plenty yeah. of time to do more stuff for me, mm -hmm. but I thought I need to do stuff for us. 
And, um, and that's how I proceeded with, with all of this. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not complaining about it. Wow. Give me a, a lot to think about right now. And I had a hunch that, that those sort of things were the case. I had a hunch that um, you've made very intentional choices, um, especially in basketball. And I think, um, you know, coaches and people generally, but I think maybe men in particular, um, sometimes have a hesitation really investing in their family um, especially when they're in uh, sort of interesting or demanding or desirable careers like basketball. Everybody wants to be in sports and it's sort of a rat race. So it's great to hear about um, just the choices you've made. You know, I don't know if I know anybody that um, would make those choices on purpose. You know what I mean? Well, I I, I do. Um, But I I will tell you that I was talking to uh, a young, uh, young mentee of mine that, Mm -hmm. um, a very very good coach he is uh i think he's one of, i think he's the best coach in the g league he's the head mm-hmm. coach for the pelicans team uh mm-hmm. in erie ryan panone mm-hmm. and um and ryan did a fabulous like coaching clinic where he talked about he'll always take his players phone calls no matter what and he and mm-hmm. he thought that that was something that really made him special and i yelled at him and I've never yelled at Ryan uh, in in seriousness. I joke with him all the time. Actually, mm-hmm. I was with him today. He he helped run my workout today with my pros in town because mm-hmm. uh, he lives here in the off season. And um, mm-hmm. I yelled at him and said, uh, "Don't you dare have the arrogance to think that your wife is just going to always put up with you mm. taking every phone call that your player gives you to go shoot. Hey, can, can we go shoot? Can you watch film?" Uh, it worked when you were single. You're married with two kids now under the age of three and a half. Wow. Like you are not going to take that approach and think that you're still going to be happily married a long time. Maybe you will be, but the odds are not good. Right. And I have a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. I'm sure some of my friends will listen to this because they're my friends. Mm-hmm. They're divorced now. They know who they are. Yeah. And I don't want, I didn't want that. And I don't want that for Ryan. And he's got an amazing wife. She's incredible. And he knows that. And uh, I think, I think as coaches, I think at any career is the same. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's any different uh, in this career versus any other one reporting CEO of a business, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, It's easy to take your partner for granted and focus on me. Mm -hmm. But as any coach knows, the focus needs to be on we. Mm. And it's got to be we then me, in my opinion. And uh, if you take that approach, I think it, you have a you create a partner. And as I've witnessed with my aging parents, uh, and knowing my body now at, at fifty five hurts a lot more more frequently than it ever used to. It's nice to have a partner to go through these things with, and and right. so I, I earned I I, I built a, I, I always said I want to build a bridge into my kids' hearts that they one day might walk back across to visit with me uh, when I need it or when they need it. And yeah. I don't know if they will. We'll see. The bridge is up. They haven't <laughs> had to walk across it yet. Let's just see what happens. But yeah. I definitely did that with my wife. Like we have, we've built a bridge to each other's hearts through many, many years. Now we're fortunate. We don't ever, we never really had an argument. We discuss things and we might disagree, but we've really never really had a fight. And mm-hmm. um, it's just, we're, we're kind of a natural fit and that's good. But, uh, and we're different people, but um, uh, that takes work. Right. And so when, uh, 
when on occasion I have gone to meet some coaching friends who want to pick my brain while they're watching an NBA game. Uh, I don't do that weekly. I don't do that monthly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm busy enough during the NBA season. I don't always have to do it in the off season too and go see co- see coaches, whatever. I pick my spots. Hmm. And and we made a decision when the kids were here that I she was never really intimately involved in my businesses then. Okay. But I made a point of like, for example, we're a par- I'm a partner with we are partners at True Hoop, mm-hmm. and she's involved. And I've got an app coming out very soon uh, at the ProTrainingCenter.com. The app's not up yet, but we'll start doing workouts, kind of like a virtual workout where players be, can be virtual clients of mine mm-hmm. and really connect me in a lot of different ways. She's involved in that. Uh, she'll be involved in, if I do another book, she'll be involved in that. Wow. Um, I, I'm just going to in, include her more this time around because she can focus on it because she doesn't have kids to worry about anymore. What did you learn? What was it like for you writing a book? You said you you accomplished most of it in two weeks, Um, but I've read through it and I mean, it's impressive. So how did you do it? I know you're a writer, so maybe it just came natural, but what was it like for you? Yeah. I mean, it's unfair to say I did it in two weeks. It probably took me four months of really working. I got a lot of it done while the kids were gone. And Mm -hmm. what I did, it's not even fair. I guess you can call it a book, but it's I had an advantage over the typical book writer. Mine was much easier. Basically, if you read it, you know, Zach, it's a, it's a collection of lessons and stories, basically, mm-hmm. of my life. It's a memoir, really. But it's a, it's a love letter to basketball. It's a love letter to my players. Uh, I always laugh when, when people will make comments if I'm on you know different podcasts, which I'm doing a lot these days because of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I love to talk about myself and all the players that I've coached. Well, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> they, they're the players I've coached. I can't help that they're NBA players, but I wrote a book that's 275 player, 275 mm-hmm. pages. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the book is dedicated to high school kids. No one's ever heard of. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I can't help it. If I'm working with pros now. That's who I'm working with. Those are my anecdotes, but the book isn't about too many pros as, as you, as you know, um, mm-hmm. what I did was I, I sat down and said, I'm going to, I want to, I want to do a hundred chapters of a story or a lesson and I want it to be a, a one lesson to two stories, I believe was the breakdown, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I haven't looked at my book in a while, but I, I might have been three stories and then a lesson. So I want it to be for a serious basketball players or uh, moms and dads who want to know more about the game because their young son is trying to play or young mm-hmm. daughter, of course, is trying to play. And, and so I wanted to give lessons like how to make a layup and how to shoot a free throw and those kinds of things because I've right. been doing this for a long time as a player development guy. Um, but I also wanted to help inspire people. My favorite word, as you may know, is the word decent or decency. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to know that we need to be decent in this endeavor to help shape young minds uh, as well as in, in our families. And so I, I just thought I had a lot of anecdotes that could help do that. Yep. And, uh, and so what I did is I came up with 100, it turns out I think it was 111 different lessons and stories that I wanted to share. And once I got, and that took two weeks, once I really got those laid out where they all were distinct stories and lessons where one didn't connect with, there's no Venn diagram that would directly connect any two uh, lessons, the stories I wanted to help inform the lessons. 
Then it was just a matter of me writing what I knew happened. Right. Uh, or what I knew worked teaching the game. So yeah. um, that's how I did it. And that's how I, I don't always write that way for my articles at True Hooper when I was at ESPN. I often do, mm -hmm. depending on how long the piece is going to be. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's how, like, I'm working on a book now. Parenting is jazz. I, yeah. I took a break from it because I just want to enjoy not being a parent anymore, you know, in-house. <laughs> You know, in a sense, I'm furloughed until <laughs> yep. they come back. Um, I'll revisit it and and do that. Uh, it's, it's basically a memoir for my wife and I and what we went yeah. through with, with twins. And then I have another basketball jazz book I'll do at some point. But I'm going to focus on Troop for now and my training for players and all of it. Uh, but that's that's how I did it. I, I come up with what I want the scene to look like in a sense, and then I and then I fill in the blank. I'm interested in this sort of connection between civic leadership and coaching and, and coaches who um, coaches who give a damn coaches who you might call woke um, and see the bigger picture. And I think a good way of starting, um, you know, we, we often ask elected officials uh, sort of, why are you running? Uh, Cause they're always running for office. So if you were to answer that uh, as you think about, yourself as a leader and teacher and coach and writer. Um, why are you running? I would say it's to, it's to reach and teach young people to inspire them in, in, in the more important lessons of life. Mm -hmm. uh, because listen, I would love to tell you that I'm the coolest cat in the round <laughs> around and I'm the best looking man of all time and the greatest <laughs> shape. And these players can't help but be in awe of me. That would just, none of it would be true. I happen to think I am pretty cool probably, but now it's more just an old man, adorable, cool. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but I really know this game. I've worked very hard at reading the matrix of basketball mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. Of course, of course I'm wrong. Uh, predicting the future is really hard Yep, and I make mistakes too, but I see what's going on pretty clearly, pretty quickly, pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. Um, and so because I can help a player today, for example, I had a, a guy that just came back. He was in, he played in Orlando in the, in the seating games, and then he uh, went to Africa for 10 days with his wife. Mm -hmm. And he'd just gotten back, and he's not shooting great. And I don't – this guy's he's been with me for a couple of years now, and he's really a talented player. And I don't overcoach those guys. I, I got to give them room to figure it out for themselves. If I'm a good teacher, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll hear my voice in their head, and they'll figure it out for themselves a lot, which is what they have to do when they're playing games. Mm-hmm. But he was having enough failure where I needed to step in and I knew what was going on. And as soon as I said something to him, and maybe it's the placebo effect, but I don't think so, but it's possible. He made like six in a row and, and kind of cleared it up. He was just, his hand wasn't getting on the ball the way it needed to. So my point is I see the game really well. But because that I because I do, because I can tell a player uh, in, in basic language how to be more successful, they'll listen to me about almost everything. Hmm. And then I don't preach. I pick my spots. I don't always agree with my players. They don't always agree with me. Mm. Uh, but on most issues, they do. And and uh, I think, generally speaking, I don't really care what your color, ethnicity, religion is. Most of us are about the same. And we mostly want the same things. And so, like, one thing most players want, especially when they hit 25 and up, is man, they want to find a partner, too. If they're NBA players, they, finding 
a companion isn't hard. Finding a life partner is. And the fact that they know how I feel about my wife and our family, and and they know because I tell them. Like, I don't answer the phone if they call me if I'm doing family stuff. Mm-hmm. Or I have to sometimes go because my wife is calling or my kids are calling or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'll miss a practice sometimes and send an assistant because I've got something to do with my family. Yeah. So uh, I pick my spots. I obviously don't do it all the time. They wouldn't come. But I do it enough where they know what my values are. And it means something to them. I've had, I had one player. Uh, he got engaged in Israel. And he called me. And I heard crying. Hmm. And I thought that something had happened terrible because it was Israel. Mm-hmm. And we're conditioned sometimes to think that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out it was his brand new fiance crying because he had just asked her and she was on the phone with her mom saying, I'm wow. engaged. Wow. And my, my player said to me, uh, uh, I called you because he said, I met with you just over a year ago mm-hmm. with another friend of his that's a, a student of mine mm-hmm. because I wanted this. And you kind of gave me some tips on how do I go about finding someone to maybe share my life with. And he said, so I, you opened my eyes to what to do. And I found this woman and we're engaged. And, and I said, well, why is she still crying? And he said, well, uh, she just called her mom. I said, well, did you cry when you called your parents? He said, I'm calling them next. And I said, hang up right now. Oh. <laughs> Never again say in public, you called me first. <laughs> that, that's a true story. So oh, um, they now have two children and very lovely couple. So, wow. so my point on that is the players want that. Play, I always say this, that all players, I don't care how old they are, they're, they're like a blind person in a house. If you take a blind person and you open a house to them and leave, they're going to run into everything. Mm-hmm. If you first walk them through where their boundaries are, here's the pool, stay away from that, right? Here's the hot water heater. Here's the oven. And you walk them through the danger zones, walk them through the safe spots. They're going to be much more comfortable. And I feel like working with your own children and with players is very, very similar. Let them know where the hot spots are. Let them know what to avoid. Keep them out of trouble. Here's where we're going to be best at. They they tend to get more comfortable that way. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's that's kind of how I approach it with, with all of them is, is I want to get them uh, to understand the important things about life and then let them be themselves. Wow. I'm curious how you think about how you learned to coach. Um, And maybe as a good way of starting, was there a coach who either um, changed your life for the better or maybe there was a coach who (laughs) taught you not how to coach? Um, Yeah. Or how to not coach? Yeah. How do you think about that? Sure. My high school coach was uh, Gene Hackman from Hoosiers. We ran mm-hmm. that, that movie was my high school career. <laughs> we ran the same offense, same practice drills. He was uh, just as much of a jerk in my opinion. Mm-hmm. He ran great basketball fundamental stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. Couldn't coach his way out of a paper bag in a game. Uh, religious person for sure, but unyielding, unloving, I wrote this long book and never mentioned his name once for a reason. He didn't inspire me to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never visited him after I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, he's not alive now. He died a few years ago, and I never thought for one second going to his funeral. He, was, he showed me how not to be a coach, in my opinion, as a man. He knew the game off the court. And tr- I'm sorry, on, on the practice court, not the game yep. court. Yep. Uh, and then um, 
I wanted to be successful because I'm super competitive and I worked my ass off. Am I allowed to cuss on this? Of course. Talk I how you talk. Fucking ass <laughs> off. Uh, I, the, I still have many of the books and videotapes. I had Billy Donovan was a grad assistant at Kentucky and they were recruiting one of my high school players. Mm-hmm. And he was sending me VCR tapes of like the Kentucky line drills, they called them, mm-hmm. when he was a grad assistant for Rick Pitino at Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I coached 10 weeks every summer. My goal was in 10 years, I want to have coached uh, a thousand plus games. So if I worked 10 weeks of camp every summer, that was about, um, if you coach 10 games a week, which didn't always was the case, it'd be, mm-hmm. you know, a hundred games a summer, but sometimes it'd be like more like 80. Then you have 20 some odd games during the season. There was no AAU really then when I coached in the, in the mid, in the late eighties, okay. my first year was 87, 88, but I coached like spring league and fall league games. I coached JV and varsity. And, um, I try to coach as much as I could. I did five-star camps and BC camps, which were just as good as five-star back then in terms of talent, lots of future. I mean, I had mm-hmm. Vince Carter and Steph Mar- Marbury and um, uh, Tim Thomas when they were <laughs> high school kids. Uh, wow. Many. Stackhouse, Jeff McGinnis, who played in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I have so many guys. Um, and so I learned, and I, le- I coached against great coaches too, so I learned a ton. But then Lon Kruger mm-hmm. uh, was the head coach of Florida. Their starting center played for me in high school for four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Oh, I should say this. I dedicated my book to my wife and the first guy to hire me, Mike McFerrin, the late <laughs> Mike McFerrin. He died, I I want to say, in the early 2000s. Wow. Uh, I'm so friendly with his daughter, who was a young girl when I was coaching with her dad, wow. um, her, his daughter, Bridget. Um, Mike didn't really teach me much about the game. He taught me a lot about life. He was a beautiful, decent person mm-hmm. who loved his players. He let me do a lot of the work. He didn't really know the game like I did. He didn't work like I did. Mm-hmm. And he had no ego. So. I could wow. not have asked for – there's literally no possible way to be in a better situation than coach a bunch of future college players, which we had, Yeah. Um, with a coach that let me do whatever I want. He hired me because I knew man-to-man because of my high school coach. Yep. Uh, it was my, Actually, my high school coach did recommend me. I, maybe, maybe I should have gone to his funeral. He did recommend me to this guy. <laughs> um, but um, Coach McFerrin was great and knew, ran a great program, quality program. We didn't cheat. We didn't recruit players. We didn't need to. We, we were great. We were very, mm-hmm. very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when, when Lon got to Florida, recruited Dimitri Hill, who played for me in high school, who mm-hmm. was to this day the all-time leading scorer in the state of Florida for post players for high school. And then he played for the Gators and went to the Final Four in 94. He started at center. And Lon Kruger was a real mentor to me. R.C. Buford mm-hmm. spent a lot of time with me that year. He was one of the assistant coaches. Wow. So on weekends, I would drive up. I had a brother in med school and another brother in regular school at University of Florida. Mm-hmm. I would drive up there. I'd see my players. I would go to practice sometimes. And then on Sunday morning, my wife was with me. On Sunday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, RC would meet with me in the O'Connell Center practice court, and we would just do drills. I would learn from him. Mm-hmm. So he was great. And then there was another assistant coach named Ron Stewart, who was really like a big brother to me. Coach Stewart now, I, I don't know if he's director of scouting, but – he has a high-level job at the Milwaukee Bucks, college and G League scouting. So mm-hmm. he was inc- probably the most helpful of anyone and a, and a very sweet man that came to meet my son last year and watched some of the players I had in the gym. And he's, he's an enormous influence on me as a person. Mm-hmm. Recruited a lot of my players because we did have very good players. Yeah. Uh, and so Coach Kruger, was who I'm still ver- friendly with too, he was amazing. They taught me a lot. And then, it was, and then I stopped coaching teams and 
you know, people say, people call me the godfather of player development. I have no clue what the truth is. I do know that in 92, 93, nobody was doing it that I knew. Yep. I would take 75 kids to a basketball camp at Five Star in Pittsburgh. They had to charter a bus for us. Uh, and uh, they were all students of mine. And, um, and so that helped me a ton because I got to watch all their games. I'd watch their high school coaches and I'd learn. And, um, and then the other thing was I started working at, I started coaching pros in, oh, in 99. My first NBA player was Udonis Haslam in 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Kevin Martin, my first, first round draft pick in 2004. And, and then I got hired at ESPN, I think in 07. And so mm-hmm. all those things in just a few years really combined to get me to, Study the game. That's why I say you can kind of read the matrix now. I've learned how to read it. Like I've earned this. This, right. this isn't because I'm smart. This is because I spent countless hours asking questions in my own head. Why did that work? Why didn't mm-hmm. this work? What if we try this? I've helped players try to guard Kobe and Dirk Nowitzki and LeBron James. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of it. I've done. I've I've been with them trying to devise schemes to win, and then we fail. We try again, and so it's helped me create a curriculum that really works for player development. And in the meantime, when I was a good high school coach, and then I started doing AAU with my, my son yep. and advising a lot of other coaches, I came up with a system for a team from the team perspective that was, is, was really good. We won a lot, of, a lot of championships with his AAU team. The high school teams I've helped out have been, I would say, probably extraordinarily successful, especially given mm-hmm. as a volunteer, we weren't always the most talented team. When I was a high school coach, we were. Every bit as talented as everyone else. We, years later, we didn't always have teams that were super talented, but we were very successful anyway. And we had teams that were very talented too, of course, with yeah. multiple, you know, D1 level players, whatever. Uh, Florida's got a lot of talent. But yeah, I, it's trial and error. And, and you know, I, I, have, I have a defensive system that I've given to coaches literally all over the world. South Africa, Australia, Thailand, mm-hmm. Egypt. I have a guy that texts me all the time from Egypt on Facebook wow. Messenger. Um, <laughs> they're all employing my system to one degree or another, I have a coach in San Francisco that's done really well, a guy in Eastern Kentucky. I'm helping a young man right now trying to land a Division three head job in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's the same system, more or less, that I've been using for a long time that just keeps getting tweaked based on how the game changes and how I get smarter. As I get smarter, it's almost like artificial intelligence. The more I'm <laughs> learning, I, I, I have no pride when it comes to coaching, zero pride. In fact, I would yeah. tell you, Zach, if you want to be a good coach, then get rid of your pride. Hmm. I, will, I will get out of a defense so fast. Uh, years ago, I think my son was in sixth grade. We were playing a team called the Lakeland Fire. His team was the Tampa Tarpons. Okay. Uh, all those kids are now freshmen in college, and I'm happy to say, oh, I think we have five or six that are playing college basketball, Division One, Division Two, including my son, of course. Nice. Um, uh, and all but one played – all but three played at least some varsity as a freshman in high school, including mm-hmm. my son. The ones that didn't went to an all-boys school where you couldn't if you wanted to. They just had 850 boys <laughs> at a big-time basketball program. They, you, yeah. you couldn't play varsity. There were too yeah. many others. But they were very good players. And one of them had 10 threes in his, one of his last varsity games as a senior, and the other was our leading scorer as a senior. Mm-hmm. And he's walking on at, at Florida, and the other one is a student at Georgetown. And I'm, yeah. I still know all these kids. So we did a great job teaching our kids. Anyway, uh, we're playing a team that always beat us. As it turned out, they had a player that was two years older than he was supposed to be. I thought that was great. I never complained about it. I don't care if you want to cheat. It's mm-hmm. helping us. We're, our, we're trying to help our sixth graders make their high school team in ninth grade. JV of yep. didn't matter. 
Yep. So if you want to play a, a 15-year-old when our kids are 12, fantastic. I think it was 14. <laughs> fantastic. Our head coach didn't agree, but um, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. And uh, But this team always killed us. And in one particular tournament championship, and I mean at this point, we were 0-3 against them in tournament finals. We had won a bunch too because they weren't in those tournaments that we won. They always beat us. Yeah. Um, the head coach and another volunteer who was a Hall of Fame high school coach named Tom Shanefelt called me to tell me they had this great – I didn't go to the finals. I, for whatever reason, probably had an NBA game or my daughter or whatever. I couldn't go to the end of the game, which is fine. They called me and had this great strategy to win. And I listened to it. I said, oh, it sounds great. I'm nervous as hell. Two hours later, they called me back. <laughs> I had to go, coach. I said, they said, oh, we got smoked, got murdered. Yeah. What do you mean? They said, they killed us, and it's all your fault. I said, my fault? I wasn't even there. And they were, they were serious at first. I, obviously, they weren't really serious. They're like, David, yeah. if you had been on the bench, he said, first of all, you would have come up with a better strategy than us. I said, I don't agree. This guy's a Hall of Fame coach, the assistant coach, Hall of Fame. Literally, in the state of Florida, Hall of Fame. Vince Carter was inducted the same weekend he was, I believe, <laughs> in the Hall of Fame. So he's this brilliant coach. Uh, I think he went to eight Final Fours here in Florida. Uh, I said, there's no way my strategy would have been better than yours. He said, maybe not. But he said, you have no pride. I never knew about that. I never thought about this until he said this, but it's a great lesson. He said, you would have seen right away that it wasn't working when they scored the first 10 points of the game, Mm -hmm. as easy as they've ever done it. And you would have just said, call timeout and let's just change it up. And it wouldn't have been a second thought to you. He said, if it was your idea, you would have said it. If it was our idea, you, you had no pride. You have no ego. You just want to win the game. If you don't want to win the game, that's fine. And we did that sometimes. We coached some games where we knew it didn't matter. We'd already kind of clinched the seating. And we would experiment. That's what kind of what some of these tournaments are for. Yeah. But if you wanted to win, you get out of it right away. That's why, for example, last night, I did not think the Thunder should let Lou Dort shoot at all. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. Lou Dort had a career game. He may never have that game again. <laughs> but I thought it was a mistake to just do it based on feel. The analytics said he can't shoot. Again, I was wrong. Uh, no, I have no pride. So I think that's a really important point to make when you're coaching is uh, everyone learns differently. Everyone learns at their own pace. Uh, I would never coach player A the same as I coach player B, the same as I coach player C, mm-hmm. individually or in team format. My job is to develop a key that works in every lock and every player is different. That's my job. Mm. Is that what I call a skeleton key, right? I once had an agent tell me, uh, he had three or four different players I was helping. And he said, I don't connect with all these guys the way you do. You have a skeleton key. And I thought, oh, wow, that's a pretty cool mm-hmm. thing to think about. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I do wow. identify I, some players I'm much more business with. Some players I can joke around more. Yep. Some players need more hugs. Some players need just more information. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do the same for anyone. And then when I get into a game, if I want to win, then I just have to think about, finding ways to win and not think about wanting to be right on anything. You reminded me of this when you talk about Lou Dort um, in in how he had a career night after um, struggling. Yeah, um, no, really strong. It was seven thirty-eight from three in the previous six games. Exactly. Yeah, from, ten of seventeen from two. Exactly. Yeah, particularly with, with shooting the outside ball. So, but it reminds me of your um, phrase, "royal jelly." Um, 
and I think maybe there might be some royal jelly going on with him to, for him to be able to to pull through that. So can you define that um, for our purposes? What does that mean? Let me tell you something, Zach. Uh, how? What are you? Twenty five? How old are you? Exactly twenty five. Yeah. Um, I am so happy that you asked me that question because I'm so old that I totally forgot about royal jelly. No way. <laughs> um, I don't even think about it. And what's funny is my dear friend, Kevin Arnovitz with, with ESPN, bought mm. me. He, he, he bought a picture. I don't know if he took the picture or not, but it's in my office right now mm-hmm. where he took a picture in – he lives in – he's a foodie in Los Angeles besides being a brilliant writer. Mm-hmm. Brilliant writer and a dear friend. He took a picture or bought a picture of a, a royal jelly stand. So I think about royal jelly all the time. It's literally in my office. I can't not go through a few <laughs> hours and not see it. But I, I hadn't thought about it in this context, and I should have. Yeah. So royal jelly is the substance that bees feed their larvae. Mm-hmm. Uh, all female bees are born genetically the same, hmm. unable to produce eggs, which means they can't continue as a species. Mm-hmm. What they do is they take particular larvae. No one knows why these particular larvae are chosen. They put them in a bigger hives in the in this in the in the hi- bitter, bigger cells in the hive, mm-hmm. and um, feed them royal jelly for a while, mm-hmm. and that does something genetically inside these larvae where they create the ovaries that become the eggs that allow them to reproduce and make more bees. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I learned this many years ago, who knows how I learned it? I uh, I realized well that's what we're supposed to do as coaches and friends and parents and husbands, right? Yeah. Is we have to feed our people that which will help them become what they're supposed to become. Hmm. And so that's what Royal Jelly is, is to me is what, what can I feed my wife? What can I feed my children? What mm-hmm. can I feed my friends? What can I feed my players so that they can become what they're supposed to become? Uh, and, and this is something I learned years later when I studied a little bit more at some point, they stopped feeding the larvae royal jelly. Hmm. And I thought, oh, that's interesting too. Yeah. Like at some point, we, I, I don't, I mean, we're not bees, we're humans. So I would never tell you that I stopped being positive at all. Mm-hmm. But there is a change in my approach. Uh, like with my son, as an example, I was hard and harsh, both of my kids, when they were younger. Lon Kruger actually taught me this. Lon Kruger told me this great story where, his first ever game, he, Lon was a Lon was such an athlete. He was one of the last guys to be drafted in all three sports: baseball, Major League wow. Baseball, NFL, and NBA. Yeah, wow. He was a great, great player at Kansas State. So he played his first ever game in Manhattan, Kansas. And you know, he's from Silver Lake, Kansas. He played mm-hmm. at Kansas State nearby. His dad was his high school coach. His dad came to the game. He's in the Big Twelve back back then. It was the Big Eight. He's in the Big Eight. Lon told me the story, and um, I I don't think he played particularly well. And he was waiting for his dad to, you know, hand him his hat, so to speak. And here's what he did wrong. It's not because he's always done that when he played for him in high school. Yeah. And halfway down, halfway home, uh, uh, Lon, back then they called him Lonnie. Lonnie, I don't ever call him Lonnie, but Lonnie <laughs> said to his dad, like, all right, dad, just let me have it. What's going on? And, and his dad <laughs> said, like, Mr. Kruger said, I don't know what you mean. And, he's, and Lonnie said, well, you've always, you know, been so critical to tell me all the things that he did wrong. And he said, son. You're playing for Jack Hartman, one of the best coaches in the country, mm-hmm. in the Big Eight at Kansas State with the, some of the best college players in America. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that is hard enough. I just need to be your dad now. Hmm. And that's exactly the approach that I worked hard at doing for my children. When I felt like they needed me to be their friend and their believer, that's what I tried to do. Hmm. And when I felt like they didn't really get it, like, for example, with COVID, yep. I used to always say, stay away from me, you're diseased. Yep. <laughs> when the pandemic first hit, I still say it sometimes now, kind of joking now, but I they, I, they, I think it hurt their feelings a little bit. I was laughing, but I was also serious. Like, I don't want to get sick and I don't want mom to get sick. And I want to be able to hug my parents one day who are 80 and 70, almost 79. Yeah. Um, uh, but mostly I've just been their supporters because they took actually, when they were high school seniors, they took, they actually went to college as high school seniors. It was a, mm-hmm. a program that was offered here. So they had 18 and 21 hours, the two of them, as seniors in high school, but it was freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. I didn't need to be on their ass. I needed to yeah. be their best friend and their believer and be there when they needed me to be there. And like I just talked to my daughter today about it. I sent her a really nice note, a couple of really nice notes yesterday. And she didn't respond. And I called today. I said, do you not want me to send you these nice notes? And she said, you mean the sappy ones? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> they're not sappy to me. I basically took a, I, I, I sent, I sent her a picture of my wife at 19 mm-hmm. Because my mom just sent me a picture. My daughter called them for the anniversary, and and my mom took a snapshot, and uh, she sent me the picture of my daughter, my son, uh, yeah. and my daughter looked just like my wife did when she was nineteen. I sent that to mm-hmm. her, wow. and uh, she's like, oh, "I like looking at mom, but I don't want you to send pictures of me." <laughs> she said, "You can send me the the sweet ones." I sent her a picture of the. Uh, she and she was my ice cream partner at night when she stopped doing ballet. I still had to find ways to connect with a girl that doesn't mm-hmm. like sports. So mm-hmm. she was my ice cream girl. We would go get ice cream once a week or so. And yeah. where are we going? What are we going to do? We get dessert or whatever and just hang out and talk. And so I sent her a picture we'd, and we would take selfies of that. So I sent her one and she said, you can send me those, but don't send me the sappy ones anymore. So yeah. we all <laughs> got to just adjust that Royal Jelly in a sense as they age. But yeah, our players, my job is to, is to make them believe they can be something that they probably don't even believe themselves. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm not harsh and critical when I need to be. Of course I am for my, my kids and certainly my players, but, but I need to be that voice of inspiration. I need to feed them that Royal jelly. And, and remember larvae are, they're living in a bigger cell in the hive. I need to give them room. Like in our gym, we applaud turnovers. We applaud mistakes. We applaud misses. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been criticized for saying that's okay. When a player turns the ball over in, in our drills, (laughs) <laughs> criticize me all you want. Like yep. if I can't get them to try harder now, they ain't going to do it in a game where they might get benched. They better learn now first against yeah. the air. So that's, that's what we do. We talk about with Royal Jelly. Okay, let's let's talk um, off the court. Let's talk uh, a state of our society. Um, and I know you have an interest in in politics. Um, I guess what I would ask is, in the state of our society, and fill in the blank, current events happen. Um, Donald Trump is elected. Colin Kaepernick is taking a knee uh, for racial justice. Um, People are being murdered in the streets. Uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, most recently 
Jacob Blake. Uh, these kinds of things are happening. What's the conversation? Um, how do you go about having that that talk and, and talking about these serious things that are that are catastrophic? How do you talk about that with, uh, especially the players you work with? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would remind you and anyone listening: every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday uh, on Troop, we do a show called "Bring It In." You mm-hmm. can find every, we do it. It's a video, live video podcast on Zoom that becomes an audio pod. You know, twenty minutes later. All mm-hmm. the video pods can be found on YouTube, and it's open to anyone. You you can't get the audio link without being a subscriber because it's a it's a four subscription site, mm-hmm. but you can you can watch it or just listen to it on YouTube. And every Friday we do a bring it in with a a young black journalist, not that young, named Gerard mm-hmm. Hector. It's a very bright mm-hmm. guy, and we do what we call a nine by ninety. There's three of us: Henry, who's a very brilliant guy, Gerard, and myself. And I'm, it's not fun to be the dumbest guy in the room ever, but I love it. <laughs> I've learned to really appreciate being the dumbest guy in a room. I seek Same that here. out. Uh, I also like reading books that I require two and three readings to really understand. I like being stupid because mm. uh, I'm not stupid for long when I keep reading. So yep. we do this thing and it's three of us and we get 90 seconds to talk about three topics one at a time. So nine topics total for 90 seconds. And typically we're talking about these kinds of issues, virus issues. We've done a lot of work on bringing in, talking mm-hmm. to science writers, scientists, doctors, Doctors treating COVID patients, doctors working on test treatments, all of that. Mm-hmm. And we've talked to a lot of uh, people involved in the Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, mm-hmm. story, head coaches, executives, players, everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we've definitely dealt a lot with this issue on the political side of things. And we're very transparent. And uh, I would say the first thing, I, I called my son the other day about this. Uh, many of his teammates are black, his roommates black, many of his coaches mm-hmm. are black, many of his best friends at home are black as well as on the team. Mm-hmm. And I reminded him, I know you have opinions on this. I know you think you know what you're talking about and you're a loving, decent person, mm-hmm. but we need to be listeners first. Mm-hmm. This is not our, we can help end the fight, but it's not our fight in the same way it's their fight. And we need to be listening to them. We need to be listening to those that are aggrieved and have been persecuted against and learn from them. And I do do our best to have empathy for them, but also vow to fight that fight for them as best as we can. Yep. Um, and so if we take that approach, which is the approach you know I've taken pretty much my whole life mm-hmm. uh, because of Diane, really, um, I think we can make progress. And that's what I was going to actually end the show with you on before you asked mm-hmm. me your question, mm-hmm. is I want to challenge everyone that hears my voice that w- w- to stay silent is no longer an option. It just isn't. Mm. We, we can't be afraid to make a mistake. We, we have to be, we have to start from a place of decency, willing to be a good listener, willing to learn, uh, uh, willing to, th- to think through things with a decent heart. Yeah. It doesn't mean you won't misspeak sometimes, but if we take that approach, we're going to be okay. And, and uh, we just, we can't allow our country to go backwards anymore. We can't. Mm-hmm. It's 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 heartbreaking in too, on too many levels. And so those of us in positions where people will listen to us because we know the game, yep. which is funny how that works, but fine. We got to speak up. We have to uh, we have to absolutely stand up 
And I've had many, many black friends call me. These are my age friends Mm -hmm. and say, we need you to do more because if you won't do it as a white man, we'll never Mm -hmm. accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. Younger black friends don't like that. They don't like the idea that a white person has to, you know, come in and save the day. I don't think I'm the lone ranger. Mm -hmm. Um, But my point is it's a delicate subject that I can talk about because I'm coming from a place of decency and listening. Mm -hmm. And so Uh, We're not really fighting over this. I'm happy to be a tiny, tiny part of a solution. If I can be, what I'm not going to do is not do nothing. I'm not, I mean, not do anything. I'm going to do something. I'm going to speak on this issue. If you're a friend of mine on Facebook, uh, which I think you are, right? Yep. Uh, I'm going to write about it. Um, I'm writing about it for two reasons. I don't think, I I will tell you, honestly, I've influenced one person to change his views (laughs) three years ago. Hmm. Uh, I was a Trump fan, a big Trump fan, Republican who no longer is. Wow. And he, he changed his mind. He, he writes all the time on Facebook. I won't say his name, but he sent me a long note about it. And I made yeah. a comment about if you have daughters, you can't vote for this man. I have one daughter and that's enough. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he said he thought about it. He wrote me. He thought about it with his wife. And, he, and they cried and said that they were very religious and said, Coach Thorpe's right. Like, mm-hmm. our daughter is at risk. They have very, very young daughter. And now I'm very proud to say he's doing way better job than me at championing the causes that we should be championing. He's a much better writer than me and involved wow. in finance, and he's just great. And um, But I also do it because my dad's 80, mm-hmm. and I would have loved to know what he thought over the years, but he didn't have Facebook to write anything. He didn't write a book. Wow, yeah. And I regret not knowing how my dad and mom felt growing up. My yeah. mom's been very liberal her whole life. My dad wasn't. My dad has come around a long way. He was never racist, but he was certainly a Republican. Republicans weren't so bad, in mm-hmm. my opinion. I think they're mm-hmm. much worse now. Not all of them, of course, but mm-hmm. but the party is struggling. I have lots of Republican friends that will be Republican again, not in this election. <laughs> yeah. uh, people I really respect and admire are changing for this election. I want my children one day when I'm dead and gone or just old and don't have any memory they don't really care now how I think. They're going to care maybe one day. And I've told them, if you want to know how I feel about you, how I feel about your mom, how I feel about the world, you can read my book, which my son did read, my daughter didn't. And you can read my Facebook post. I try to post at least once a day. Yeah, uh, It's my scrapbook in a sense, right? It's my journal, That's, right? My yeah. diary. Yeah. <laughs> that is a great idea. Never, never heard anybody think of of Facebook in that way. That's probably the best use of Facebook I've ever heard. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I like to connect with friends and I love seeing, uh, I mean, I have friends who I've been on Facebook with since maybe 07, 08, maybe even before that, I'm not sure. And they're out of college and married and living with people and it's amazing. And, and people who have seen my kids grow up on Facebook have sent me so many notes about it. I just, I remember the twins being, you know, just out of their cribs and whatever and and so that part's cool. But yeah, the bigger thing is it's a love letter to my children when I'm dead and gone. This is who your dad is. You want to know how I thought about the world? Here it is. Every day, if you want to use my account, sign in as me when I'm dead, um, <laughs> yeah. you're going to get those memories. I love these memories. Those memories now of start, you know, my kids are little, like taking vacations. It's summertime still. Yeah. So first day of school and this, that, whatever. So I, I love those things. But really, it's for my kids. And, um, and connecting with people. I, I have a lot of friends, I told you growing up, who connect with me now. And you know, they're, in many cases, it's women whose husbands and or bosses would never approve of them liking anything that I write. Mm-hmm. So they just send me personal messages about, please keep doing what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I believe what you're saying. 
I want your writing, but I can't admit it, which is sad in my opinion. Yeah. But it is what it is. So uh, I, we all have a part to play. I, I don't want to have the world be nothing but Democratic presidents. I don't want to have the world to be um, a, a, a place where burnings are being burnt, uh, burnt every day. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want the world to be more, I want the country to be more decent. I want to, us to treat our black and brown brothers and sisters as equals because they are. Mm-hmm. I want the world to recognize that we treat women terribly in, in this country. We're better than uh-huh. most, but we're not where we need to be. And that mm-hmm. has to change. And I want the world to recognize that it, it's, it's not wrong for us to admit we've been wrong and we need to be mm-hmm. better. That's right. And so that's what, those are my ideals. And people want to fight it and I can't do much about it other than they're not going to intimidate me. I'm going to continue to speak <laughs> my piece. Definitely. Well, I, I certainly am, am grateful for you doing that. And thank you really for being a part of this project and this inquiry into the art of coaching for civic leadership. Um, is are the, Where would you like to send, where can we send people's eyes and ears uh, to see and hear more of you? So truehoop.com is where we, uh, I publish every week. It is a for pay site that sometimes has free stuff. Mm-hmm. Bring it in is on YouTube. You can subscribe on YouTube or if you're a, that's free. If you're a subscriber to Truth, then you'll get it in your inbox. It's a, right. a newsletter that you get. And then theprotrainingcenter.com, theprotrainingcenter.com is where we do our virtual training. Uh, uh, where if you, if you have a child that wants to be much better, if you're a coach, we have a lot of coaches that want to do it. You mm-hmm. get five workouts from me where it's literally my voice, my video, my clips with my pros with stuff you can do with your kids every day, your players boy or girl, doesn't matter. Um, and, and then over time, we're going to be doing interactive stuff where you can connect with me via Slack and phone calls, whatever. And then I'm at Coach Thorpe at Twitter, and I think at Coach David Thorpe at Instagram and David B. Thorpe uh, on Facebook. Awesome. Yeah, I think you've said that before a time or two, huh? <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been really great. I really appreciate you. I've learned a lot. I can't wait to to listen to this. Um, can't thank you enough. And I hope this is just the start of our, our relationship. Um, you me know, too. I've, I've been, uh, I've had a relationship with you for a while, but you're getting to know me as well. So thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Zach. And yes, don't be a stranger. Okay. Sounds good. Talk soon. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the coach, David Thorpe. This podcast episode is part of the Coaching for Civic Leadership Project an inquiry into the art of coaching for civic leadership, which I describe as coaching in a way that improves our society by the way you coach. The act of coaching with an eye toward developing leadership, problem solving, and social interest and understanding. If you'd like to keep up with this project, you can subscribe to the podcast and also subscribe to updates, writings, and interviews on our website, coachingforcivicleadership.com.